As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. Welcome, listeners, to So Very Wrong About Games, a board gaming podcast about board games. I am your co-host, Michael Walker, and I'm here with my great friend, Mark Bigney. Citation needed. Citation needed. (laughs) (laughs) Well, after your dramatic pause for a podcast about, I figured, just want to be very, very clear. (laughs) So, we are going to talk about the games we played this week. We're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter. And then we're going to talk about our main game this week, which is Planet Unknown. It's a lot of reverb for a pretty themeless game. You want themeless game? Man, do we have a themeless game. <laughs> so, Walker, what would you play this week? Mark, we played... Did we play? We experienced ISS Vanguard. This is designed by all sorts of people who you will now tell us who designed it. Andrzej Bitkiewicz, Krzysztof Piskorski, Pavel Samborski, and Marcin Svirkat. This is published by Awaken Realms. And yeah, um, <laughs> we, pl- we played a game called Unsettled a while ago. We did. And and it, it, I thought it was full of theme and, and did what it set out to do very well. It gave you an immersive experience, a whole sort of sci-fi quest in a very short time with light rules load. And I feel as though that's what ISS Vanguard is trying to do. It is really uh, bookkeeping the bookkeeping game. If you play this solo, you might enjoy it because the the sort of getting ready for the mission, which took up most of the time, seemed a lot more enjoyable, like sort of a kingdom death, kingdom death feel. You know, it's very in-depth, you know, keeping track of your characters, upgrading tech and doing all of that stuff. Very interesting sort of slide the cards in and slide them across and... It seemed interesting, the very little that I experienced. 
Well, that was the very little I experienced as well. I, I, I voiced my frustration with the way the rules are introduced when I talked about ISS Vanguard a few weeks ago, because it has this incredibly unnecessary tutorial that is then followed in the rulebook by a quite reasonable rules explanation. And nonetheless, the tutorial has plot information, so it's weird. I disagree about the ship management part. It didn't feel to me like Kingdom Death Monster, because it didn't feel like paperwork. It felt like sort of a combination of the streamlining elements of a choose-your-own-adventure with all the management and upkeep that you would need to do for another campaign game. Everything's organized in this binder with sheets that have pockets for cards. And so just as an example, when you have a character come home from a mission, this is not what you would do at first, if they come home with a mission with one injury, they go into one column, and at the end of every mission, you slide every over, over, over one column. So if they came back with one injury, they'll be ready after setting out one mission. They come back with two injuries, they go two columns over, etc., etc. So rather than having to write anything down anywhere, it is all managed through these cards, and every time you go through ship management, you literally just open up the binder and you follow the menu, and you have a certain amount of command points and a certain amount of energy, which will determine how well you're able to exploit the ship's systems, and all of them are upgradable, and all of them interact with various crew you have. This part was great, and I want every single campaign game from now until forever to steal almost everything from that part of ISS Vanguard. You said it felt it like it took more than the actual rest of the game. I disagree. It was very brief. I wanted it, it, it to be longer. It was a little bit of an exaggeration. And this was despite the fact that this was the first time any of us had gone through with it, because despite the fact that there's a very weird, laborious tutorial, the tutorial then says, oh, and then there's the ship management stuff. Uh, just open the binder and do what it says. Like, all right, sure. And I, it was, I, I was a little bit worried because I hadn't bothered to sit down and go through with it by myself, but it was very, very straightforward. And as I said, it completely obviated the need for paperwork, and I want every campaign game to work this way. Then you actually land on the planet, and then it was attrition the game. Yeah, then you start rolling dice. <sighs> then you roll more dice. And it got tedious halfway through the game, never mind continuing a campaign of this rolling dice over and over again. It was painful. It was it was genuinely painful. The planetary exploration, I would say, wasn't as bad as the planetary exploration of Stars of Icarios, which will always be, to me, the gold standard of painful, unnecessary planetary exploration. But here's the, here's the thing. When we were still enjoying the combat of, of Stars of Icarios more, we'd be like, okay, all we need to do is get through this planetary exploration, and then we can back, get back to the mode of the game that's more fun. When we were finished with ISS Vanguard, of the planetary, well, not planetary, but of the exploration part, the part that wasn't management and upkeep, you were like, where, where, where's, what, what's the game? Where's the game? And I'm like, this is the game. This, this, this in the binder, this is the game. You actually said, where, when's the mech combat? Because you, you had this idea, this half-formed idea that had me something else going on. <laughs> I'm going to have to go back to the Kickstarter, because I'm sure there's giant robots somewhere in that Kickstarter page. Well, the miniature, uh, look... This is, this is a Kickstarter released of the past five years. Of course, the miniatures are gorgeous. This Sorry, let's say Game Found. Let's make sure, because it wasn't on Kickstarter. It okay. It was a crowdfunded game yes, from Awakened Realms. Of course, the components are glorious. All these explorers have various forms of power armor, although I will point out once again, this is a pet peeve of mine. 
Women in power armor will look just like men in power armor because it's freaking power armor. If you have large armored plates that stick out a considerable amount and you you look like a linebacker, but from the future, you're not going to have sculpted metal bazoongas on the front of your chest. Ain't going to happen. Anyway, yeah. anyway, but moving on past that. Other than that, the miniatures are, are very, very lovely. I'm a sucker for power armor. I play Infinity. I love various forms of sci-fi power armor. And, you know, the card art is nice. But, but they're pointless. Yes. They're not in scale with anything. It's they're, true. They're they just, can't even fit on the cards. They're right. just glorified <laughs> tokens. It's to true. Mark, yeah. Well, they're worse than glorified tokens. They're too big. Yeah. <laughs> I, I also disagree with you a bit about Unsettled. I felt it was just lacking in enough theme, but it, it definitely had a lot more than ISS Vanguard did. Uh, I Look, there's a lot of great ideas in ISS Vanguard. A lot of them con- con- consisting of the ship management. And then you just you go, and it's it's it it reminded me a lot of the grindingly attritional nonsense of Sleeping Gods because you start out as strong as you're ever going to be, and you just start losing dice and losing dice, and suddenly everything is a question of oh I don't want to waste any of these precious resources and doing anything, and nothing you do nothing we did in that mission or the tutorial was remotely interesting. Roll these three dice to turn on this ledge, exhaust these two dice to move from this card to this other card. Blah 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 blah, blah. whatever. The writing was okay. It wasn't nearly as bad as a lot of other ones. Not as good as the best. Not as good as, say, Oath Sworn or as Legacy of Dragonhold, but certainly not as bad as Stars of Akarios. Uh, probably slightly better, I'd say, than Gloomhaven, just to, just to throw a bunch of games that have a lot of writing in there. And I'm vaguely curious about the overall plot, but not nearly enough to bother uh, trudging through any of the rest of ISS Vanguard. That is for damn sure. That is our foray into ISS Vanguard. So, Daniela Tashini is kind of sort of still in the doghouse, and I don't mean to use that term to minimize the extent of the harm he did with his racist and sexist remarks of a few years ago. If you want to hear our coverage of that, you can find it. But he, ha- he in conjunction with NSKN Games and Board and Dice, had been making efforts. He's uh, attended a variety of classes and he's donating a bunch of his proceeds from contracts to causes and such. And so suffice to say that he's very much in the wait and see mode of whether or not he should be let back into good graces. This was on my mind because uh, over the course of the past week, I played Teotihuacan City of Gods, uh, designed by Daniela Tashini and David Serce. And I was reminded of how tracky Teotihuacan is. I, I complain a lot about Euro games that result in tracks on tracks on tracks. The trackiest game of all tracks is probably Tzolkin, right up there with... Tapestry. Ta- well, <laughs> Tapestry <laughs> redefines trackiness. Well, the, the, the part that I really don't like about tracky games uh, that, that is characterized a little bit by Teotihuacan and very much like Tzolkin and very much like Terra Mystica is these ancillary things that are tucked off into the corner that don't occupy a whole bunch of space and are not visually predominant, have nothing to do with the theme, have weird asymmetric costs, and end up being very determinative to your overall score and success in the game. That's basically my beef with tracks. If anything, I'm a little more forgiving of tracky games like Tapestry because at least there you can say the entire game is these tracks. And you're like, oh, okay, sure. Not entirely unlike the game we'll be talking about later. So... 
I really still like the action efficiency of Teotihuacan. I like how everything is difficult but not complicated. It's hard to get a couple stone in Teotihuacan. You get a couple stone in a turn, that's a good turn. You did a good job. But it's not convoluted the way you might find in, say, a Vital Lacerda game, where in order to get the stone, first you need the stone contracts, and then you need to hire out the stone workers, and then you need the vehicle to go get to the stone quarry, and then you go to the... Anyway, you get the idea. And on top of that, I really do appreciate the fact that Teotihuacan lets you, you know, go and build things. The game is about building the pyramid. And so unlike the other trackiest of games, in a pinch, when explaining the rules as I was, the reason why I was playing Teotihuacan in part, not that I strongly object to the game in any way, is because a patron found it difficult to discern from the rulebook. And quite frankly, experiencing the rulebook for the first time, I can't blame him. I know how the game works, and while reading the rulebook, is like, this is not a very good explanation for what's going on. <laughs> so I don't know how you did it the first time, but good job for that first rules explanation you gave us, Walker. Kudos a few years after the fact. But in short, you can gesture and say, we're building this pyramid, build a lot of this pyramid, and you'll probably do okay. And I appreciate that. Being able to point to a relatively point salad game and say the central thematic mechanism will probably get you a whack of points ain't bad. Then, and it's fun to do. And it is fun to do, and it's pretty. It's the prettiest thing. It's the most. Uh, it's it's the largest set of components. And so, yes, you can get an incredibly large number of points through the Avenue of the Dead, which feels weird and ancillary because it is. You can get a large number of points from masks if you go into it, which feels weird and ancillary, which they are. But. I'm more forgiving, as I say, uh, of, of Teotihuacan City of Ghosts. I ha don't have any experience with the ample expansions that it's had. I played once with a couple of modules from the, the, the first expansion, but I don't have a whole lot of experience. But Teotihuacan has held up relatively well over the course of, of the past few years. Uh, far better than Daniela Tishini's reputation, let me put it that way. And I was happy to go back to it and do a friend of solid. So that was Teotihuacan City of Gods. We got to also experience... Frostpunk, a giant Kickstarter that just arrived the other day. This is by Adam Kapinski and put out by Glass Cannon Unplugged. And it's mostly around, uh, you know, society has fallen because, you know, drastic temperatures have dropped. Everyone flooded south and chaos ensued. London has built these giant generators in the north, but they were abandoned in the, you know, in the, in the scurry to get south. And since it went to pot, few people have ventured back to these generators and that's what you're doing now you have a small group of of poor civilians and you're trying to eke out the rest of your life by feeding this generator coal in order to warm your people and your areas you walker walker it only feels like the rest of your life it'll probably only be four hours max so i really think when you when you if you ever get a chance to play uh, Frostpunk, you need, really need to invite people who are, will buy into this theme. I think it did a great job of sort of, I didn't play a lot of the video game, mm -hmm. but it sort of followed the same sort of video game tropes where it'll give you uh, a mission and you need to sort of plan towards that. I think the game will shine more if the players get together and sort of figure out how to reach those goals and and not, I don't mean like in a gaming sense, but just sort of like as a as a community saying, okay, now we're gonna have to, you know, let's you you know do this part and you do that part, and then we'll we'll it's look through these buildings and we'll we'll see if we can get to this final goal quicker and not die. I, I'd ask you to elaborate on that because the scenario that we had had two parts. One of them was 
if by turn four you have built this building, go to par- go to card A. If you haven't, go to card B. We inferred from this that we were supposed to build the building. Maybe that was a mistake. I doubt it somehow. So then that was a goal. We build the building. And then a number of times, a number of people ask, so, so what's the next goal? And it's like, well, it just says, uh, if this thing has happened over which we have no control, go to A by turn nine or B. So we didn't have a goal. At that point, it was just killing time until the scenario told us what was going to happen next. True. The second part was a little hidden in the in the cards. I would have I would have been a bigger fan of that scenario structure if we had had some idea of how to shoot for that thing. Because the first part, you're right, it was a little purposive. We had this idea, we had our short-term needs of survival, and then we had our medium-term needs of building this building which we might otherwise not do because we got the impression the scenario wanted us to. And I was fine with that part. Yeah, I, and I, there's a lot there's like 15 different buildings you can buy that are going to, you know, give you a bunch of different advantages. There is a very cool, the heat generator that I talked about has a very interesting system where you feed it coal and you build this map in sort of concentric circles and it heats out. And because every action you do is a cold action, unless you've heated it somehow. And I thought that was all very interesting. And the fact that every turn there's a weather phase and it's going to move all these different markers up and down and and affect how you do that. That part was great. The spatiality of where you're building the buildings, buildings have a certain insulation value, and on top of that, you want them as proximate to the generator as possible, because as you're chucking an ever-increasing quantity of coal into the generator, if you send your workers out such that the generator isn't fired hot enough, they'll get sick. And the various criteria of determining whether or not an action is considered cold or heated is very simple to apply, has a very interesting push-pull mechanism with respect to both the weather and coal distribution, and it was managed quite well, in part because of clever use of components and a very well-designed track and a very easily visually distinguishable set of icons. Unfortunately... That was an exception I found compared to the rest of the visual indicia of Frostbark. So, for example, if you send a worker out to do an action that's cold, and some actions are necessarily cold, like cleaning snow, which, parenthetically, I don't know how much the designers of Frostbark have cleared snow, it's not an activity that I would associate with being particularly cold. Were they shoveling the snow into their own face? Yes. Oh, that's not how you do it. It's very cold. Okay. Or maybe they didn't have shovels. I don't know. At that point, it would be exceptionally cold. Whatever. When you send a worker out to go do a cold action, you advance on the sickness track. And even by the end of the game, we lost about two and a half hours into the game, and it probably would have got at least four or five. Now, largely this because we were grappling with the rules, because there are systems upon systems upon systems, and phases upon phases upon phases. I still didn't understand how that sickness track worked. It tracked how many workers you have, but the number of workers you have is independent from the number of meeples you have. And there's this penalty at the bottom of the track, but the penalty didn't apply except in a certain phase. And you'd go up and down at various parts of the phase. So you wanted to be at some... I love the track. I love the track. I love how, you know, depending on how many people you had would tell you how many meeples you had and, and how many how sick they were told you... What happened? Now, the problem was... It well, maybe told you what happened. It didn't tell me anything. It, I'm, that's what I'm saying. That's the problem. It didn't tell us when that happened. Yes. Right? There was a thing on the side. It said, you know, flip that worker token over. And if it flips again, then one would die. And But even that, just, just to hone in on one very, very, very small aspect. So on one side of the marker is a hypodermic needle, and the other side of the marker is a skull. And the idea is, is that, uh, and to be frank, despite having read the rules and played the game a few days ago, I can't even remember what causes these various things to happen. When the marker flips, 
you don't do the thing that you flip to. You you do well, the thing well, you flipped off of. Technically, the thing that you flip to is critically sick, not dead. I so know. You go but... from sick to critically sick, and then and then flipping it again means death. I All agree. That... Maybe the skull wasn't the best, you know, icon for that, but I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> still can't remember when it happened, how it happened, what the penalty of the bottle. Yeah, and they compound this. With the idea, and it's 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 a novel idea. It reminds me of how it was done with Aliens Bug Hunt. They're like, all right, everybody, you sit down to play and give everybody a job, and they're going to be responsible for managing certain things. I I'm always talking about how people who write rules and design games need to be conscious about managing the information load. This is not the way to do it. For one, you cannot be certain that all four players are going to be in each of the four games. Because what they do is, in the reference works, the all-important reference works, any phase-heavy game needs very excellent reference works. You can't be guaranteed that all four players are going to be there. You also can't be guaranteed that all four players are going to be equally on the ball and ready to run the game to the same extent. I was cross-referencing two different reference works, bits of the rulebook, and trying to reconcile that with the track, all just to get through a simple round of the game. And the track of which there are eight. We, we've <laughs> talked about we've talked about two, and there are That's several true. other tracks. There are lots of tracks, lots of sprawl of cards. We talked about how uh, you know there were endless decks of cards for Darkest Dungeon. Frostpunk says, "Hold my beer." At least in Frostpunk, differentiating the different cards were simple. Like for example, you'd say, "Where's the weather deck?" It's like, "Oh, I remember the icon on the back of the weather deck. It's a little cloud." So you can look across the table and try to find the thing. Some decks sit on spaces on boards. Some decks don't. <laughs> Seemingly an arbitrary differentiation. That's one of the reasons why we had such difficulty finding the weather deck, because it was sitting on a board space. Anyhow, I felt that thematically it kind of worked. Huey made an interesting observation at the end of the game, because he's played the video game a lot. The way we lost the game, I don't want to gloss over this, it wasn't a forced loss condition, but it certainly felt very close to it. What happened was, uh, one of the aspects of the game, which I wanted it to be more interesting than it was, you can pass laws. And the laws will randomly introduce one of two consequences into the event deck. Robinson Crusoe style. If anyone's played Robinson Crusoe, you have this event deck, you make moral decisions or any kind of decisions during the game, and then you shuffle them in to the deck, and and then interesting, at least to me, interesting consequences will happen about things that you decided on previously. Yes, the, the, the problem, part, partially for me, a lot of it was about politics. And I didn't really appreciate or find particularly interesting or, or compelling the way it was modeling political decisions. That's just a personal taste thing. Other people might find it more compelling. But we were in a position where we passed a law, and effectively what, what that meant was, one of the two consequences of that law was, have you built this specific building? No? Oh, well then. <laughs> so sorry for you. It wasn't an auto loss, but it was darn near close. And what Huey said was, that felt a lot like the video game. And he said that it was, he felt that it was more appropriate in a video game than it was for a PC, uh, for a, a board game. Because in a, in a PC game, you're 10, 20, 30 minutes into a playthrough, you hit the loss, you start over again. That's fine. And that's very, very fitting with a lot of the structure of, of many games. Now you've learned your lesson, you go do it again. Board games, you, you shouldn't pull that kind of stuff. Especially when setup, teardown, and playthroughs take this long to then feel like, oh, well, I just needed to know this in advance, but I wasn't allowed to, so I didn't build this building, I guess I lost. Okay. Yeah, I couldn't go 10 minutes back in my save game and say, oh, I need this building, I'll right. build that now, and then continue with my game. 
Right, and the burdens of just starting over again are considerable. I overall, what we what we're left with is a couple of things that I found very very compelling and clever, particularly the aspect of heating and how how that influenced your resource management and how you're building out your colony. I liked how it wanted to grapple with politics, even though that I, I didn't necessarily like the execution of it. But oh my goodness, the tedium, the bad information, the bad and and I I would say uneven information management. And the sheer cognitive load of running an overlong game eh, didn't do anything for me. What did you think about the track that sort of kept track of how how your citizens felt? You had discontent and you had hope, and they and they it was it was sort of uh, shown or the imagery was these tokens you'd pull these out of these bags, and they all they would have they'd be either active or inactive, and they'd give you and they would uh, sort of. Uh, key off of cards if you had yeah. certain things. I didn't like it, particularly because of the way they wanted it to key off of cards. For example, everybody had a special power card that could be exerted by exhausting a particular kind of hope. Well, you're drawing them randomly from the bag. Granted, there's only three different kinds, but you don't draw that many. It's it's a very, very limited resource. So first of all, it's making you feel like your power may never be able to come up because you never pulled the random thing. And even when you have it, it seems like a very, very painful thing to do and usually beside the point. Again, the idea here is, I I like how it's trying to model this idea. I would have been much happier if you were able to exert a little bit more control over which things you pulled from the bag. An example could be that special power that needs to exhaust justice. Well, what if you could tap it or exhaust it the next time you pull randomly from the bag to say, no, we're not pulling randomly. We'll get justice. That at least could set you up potentially and make planning decisions. But as it is. No, same feeling I had. I thought it was very interesting what they, what they thought would happen or hopefully will happen in the future, but it did not manifest itself in our game. I'm definitely going to go back to it. I really felt as though it's more of a solo experience because even though they say it's, you know, cooperative, you know, this one really leans heavily into alpha gaming for sure. Yes. Not entirely unlike ISS Vanguard. These are two solo games masquerading as multiplayer games. They're both fixed four player, in theory, four player count games, but in point of fact, it's really only just one set of decisions to be made anyhow. That was Frostpunk the Board Game by Adam Klopinski. Played a couple games of Micro Macro Crime City All In. This is the third set of Micro Macro Crime City, the first one being simply Crime City, the second one being Full House, and the third one being All In, presumably because they could not keep affording those Stamos dollars. I have to say worst name. Really is the worst name, because it just really leads people to believe, like even several people at the table when I said that I I had ordered it, they said, oh, is that the big box that has... All of the, you know, one and two in it. And like, <laughs> and then I even had to read. I did. I thought it was as That's well. That's a good point. So I, I looked at it and said, no, this is just the third one. It's a standalone, has nothing to do with the other ones. That's a good point. That's an excellent point. Well, you've heard us talk about Micro Macro Crime City before. It is a glorious game that requires, I believe, precisely zero rules explanation. All you need to do is set it out and start reading from a card. The only substantive change that has been made between editions is as of Full House and All In, there's an age appropriateness rating, which was a mild concern I we'd actually expressed for the first game because some of them involve like complicated, adulterous trysts culminating in blackmail and murder. And I'm not saying that's necessarily inappropriate to share with your child, but I know that I know some parents would rather not. Other than that, it's a fabulous family game, great for pretty much any number of people, but yeah, at a certain point, 
there's only so much room around a table to crowd around this map. Wonderful for gamers and non-hobbyist gamers alike. Uh, the only the only minor misgiving that I have in terms of representing this for everybody, and it makes a marvelous Christmas gift. Doesn't matter who it is. If you celebrate Christmas, if you give gifts for any any particular reason, religious or otherwise, I highly recommend any micro macro Crime City game. Fabulous activities. They I find them utterly delightful, and they're eminently re-giftable as well. You finish the cases, or even if you finish a certain number of cases, pass them on. I can't remember which micro-macro sets I still have because I'm constantly giving them away to people. I, I'm just thinking the same thing. It's like, where are my other two? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And All In continues in that excellent tradition. Uh, the only misgiving that I have in terms of rep- re- recommending it for everybody is it is a strain on your eyesight. If you're I, I read a lot of board game critics who are, you know, 40, 50, 60, and they talk a lot about how certain cards are laid out with such a strain on their vision. I've never really had that experience before, except in the context of Micro Macro. Now, it does come with a magnifying glass, but I will say that if your eyesight is not perfect, then it can be a bit of a strain, but even then, it's such a marvelous experience. Yeah, the only hurdle that I see is sometimes, and, it, and it's overcome very quickly, but just sort of like the time distortion of the map. Yes. The fact that it is multiple sort of, t- you know, moments in time fluctuating all over the map and, and just sort of, you know, getting that in your head takes a second, but then you're off to the races. That is absolutely true. So, Micro Macro Crime City, any version you ha- you can find, any version you want to try, if you haven't tried it yet, marvelous, marvelous experience, just a delight, so full of character and personality, even if you don't like puzzles, even if you don't like murder mysteries, because I have no patience for either of those two things, but I nonetheless find Micro Macro such a compelling experience. Johannes Sick, Edition Spielweise, Micro Macro Crime City. I finally got Endless Winter back to the table. I don't know what it is about it that I enjoy. I think it's sort of like a witch stone type thing where it's sort of like a, you know, this combos off of that. This company, so all of these different mechanisms, deck building and and area control and tiling and and, yeah. and worker placement, set collection, all of these things, and how they sort of interweave with each other, and it all sort of correlates. Even though each one of those things individually is bland and light, just the fact that it all works together, it all comes in this interesting package. I really like how you know everything looks, the colors, the art. And uh, there's a bunch of expansions that I want to try out. So I'm going to keep playing Endless Winter, designed by Stan Kordonsky and published by Fantasia Games. They're going to be putting out a bunch of more stuff. They seem to be rocketing forward. So well, the, the, the winter, it's endless, you see. It is quite endless. It's never going to stop. And it'll never, it'll never stop being cold, Mark. Expansions for this game forever. And it's just, and the funny part is it's more mechanisms. So it's like, oh, really? yeah, there's one like... There's one that's cave paintings that, you know, sort of put, puts a roll and write mechanism in there. And okay. I, I, I shouldn't say that because I haven't read it, but it comes with erasable markers and, and glossy. Call so, me when they have a dexterity element. Will do. You know that they're really committed to the everything kitchen sink design once they put the dexterity, because that's always the last thing that people think of. That's right. I can't wait. I hope <laughs> I, I will freely grant you that it is a minor miracle that Endless Winter Paleo-Americans works at all. And it still feels like a, a medium weight experience, despite the fact that it has all these sprawling mechanisms. It's just, they don't really hang together. They don't, well, they hang together, but they don't really interlock. They don't really influence each other in interesting ways. They're just scattered all over the place, which 
I think is one of the reasons why to me it felt so generic and, and forgettable. Although you're right, the mere fact that it works is a minor miracle. And so there's some design appreciation for the design on that level, at least. Finally, for me, I got to play Last Message. Last Message was designed by Lee Jun-hwa and Jun Kim, published last year by Yellow. This is a party-ish type of game where you lay out a map, uh, a very, very densely populated map, with art by Vincent Dutre, one of my favorite board game artists. And effectively, you're trying to play a game of Where's Waldo, whereby one player is trying to give you a clue as to which of the individuals on the densely occupied map you're trying to uh, pick out. They do this by drawing, writing, doing whatever they want on a dry erase board that is divided up into sections. And then another person who's the miscreant secretly, well, secret, well, you don't get to see the, the, the full version. The team that is trying to guess doesn't get to see the full version. The miscreant then erases some number of those quadrants. The number uh, gradually goes down as rounds go on. You then see this incomplete partially erased mangled set of clues and or drawings and then try to pick out who the desired individual is on the map. It was weird. <laughs> and like many games of this ilk, it really rests on the talent and the ingenuity of the individual doing the drawing. So imagine a game of code names. One of the geniuses of a good party game is that it will survive regardless of the merits, talents, or proclivities of the people therein, right? One of the reasons why I don't like Spyfall is because it's a very stressful experience, and if anyone's not up to the task of coming up with interesting and clever questions and or interesting or clever answers, the game can feel a little bit uneven. Contrast it with Codenames, where being the Codemaster is difficult, and if you give bad clues, you're going to lose, but the game is still going to proceed in a relatively interesting fashion. I think that's one of the things that differentiates an excellent party game from a bad party game. I played Last Message several times in succession, once with a truly Herculean spectacular clue giver where we immediately were able to guess the answer on the first round reliably. Cause I looked at the map and as I said, very densely populated with all these identical looking cartoon characters as contrasted with say crime city micro macro, where all the characters are bursting with personality and very, very visually distinct despite consisting of very simple line drawings. This was full color art and everyone looked the same. I mean, we're never going to be able to guess this, get a good clue giver. And we were able to nail it every time. Get a mediocre clue giver, shall we say, someone not as graphically gifted, like, for example, like, I was not the clue giver in any of the games, but if I were ever said to be a clue giver, I cannot draw to save my life. The game is just going to be a frustrating, random, meandering experience of nonsense. And that was generally my experience with Last Message. It was either, it was one of those experiences where the first few games were trivially easy, and then the last few games were frustrating grinds, precisely because of the talents of the clue giver. An interesting concept, I really liked this idea of, you know, you, the clue giver draws across this entire board, and then the miscreant gets to erase sections of it. That was very, very novel. But all told, I found that it was an uneven experience and very susceptible to different player arrangements. And so that was my experience with Last Message. My last two games were from Board Game Arena and loving Board Game Arena. Where's my check? But sometimes it leads you into trouble because, you know, you... you load up a game that you've played before. And it's like, oh, this is so nicely automated. I'm sure I'll pick it up right away. <laughs> and then you you forget key parts of the rules until it's too late. What so, happened to you, Walker? Well, I was playing the Chucky Mags. Oh, yeah. And, and as per usual, I forgot that the, the pylons added to the score. Mm. And the funny thing is, you, you, you could mouse, like, later on, mm -hmm. I, I realized you just mouse over the, the island and it actually 
tallies the score for you. Very nice. So you can see it. Question. Was this actually Chucky Mags or no. were you actually playing Ariantis? Ariantis. So sure. not Charlie Big Big. No, no, not, okay. not the big. Not Karuni Maguli. No. But that being said, I, I thought I would dislike it because of this new theme, but but unfortunately Chucky Mags has no theme either. It's true. And if you get a copy that has a little bit more updated components, because the Chucky Big Mag, 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 Mag Charlie Star, Big Big, Charlie Big Big's copy is a little dated, a little old, a little brownie, very brown, aggressively brown, uh, and this super is, sepia. I think is the technical term, especially compared to this super colorful, cartoony, bright clouds. And the core gameplay is the same. They give you these, also these funky abilities that you can sort of throw in. I wasn't a fan of those. Yeah, they were a little bit weird. Have you, pl- have you actually played a, a real copy of this? I have played a real copy of Ariantis. So yes. I still haven't. I still haven't read the actual Ariantis rule book. I just, I'm just going to. Well, for it. one thing, they hardly mention Carlos Grande at all. That's awful. Which is a, a big oversight. Now the cards are they secret to you? The special power cards? Yes. No. Okay. Thank God. <laughs> yeah. No. There's no surprise. <laughs> yeah, that would have been awful. Yes. But yes, definitely enjoying it. Playing with some listeners. Super fun. And the other game was War Chest. I definitely want to get back to War Chest. I I, I did enjoy this game. Like I said, I, I thought I remembered how to play it. But mm. it's like, how how do I capture these points again? So then I had to go off to the rule book. But anyway, it, it just gives you that sort of like the Duke feel or a little bit of chess feel. And I, I want to try out these expansions that uh, have come out. Okay. How have your end games been with respect to War Chest? Well, this one wasn't, uh, I don't think it was very representative because my opponent was, was so sad. It was painful, really. I was his warm boy. I'm sure he tried his best. <laughs> Did you crush warm boy online? A little bit. That's okay. only because he normally crushes me at everything. So I, I didn't feel bad at all. He is the warmest of boys. He is. And that is the games we played this week. This episode is brought to you by the Spring Cleaning Champions, Manscaped. This season, make sure to groom your carpets and the drapes with the leaders in below-the-waist grooming. Clear out that winter bush with Manscaped's Lawnmower 5.0 and watch your confidence bloom like the springtime flowers. Embrace the season and join the 10 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped with our special offer. Go to manscaped.com and use code SOWRONGGAMES for 20% off plus free shipping. Whether you're looking to craft your signature look or clean up that neckline, Manscaped has the right tools for the job. Introducing the season's champ, the Lawnmower 5.0 Ultra. It features two interchangeable next-gen skin-safe blade heads, dual LED spotlights, and sleevers rejoice. It's waterproof and comes with a swank carrying case. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code SOWRONGGAMES at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and free shipping with the code SOWRONGGAMES at manscaped.com. Nothing like a little spring cleaning in your pants. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, 
according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. So it is the season, Mark. And there is what season a, would that be, Walker? The snow season. <laughs> so Roland writes, we're not a big fan, but more on that later, I'm sure. This one's called Snow People. It's a Kickstarter, but you can just, it's a, they're going to send out digital copies and it's very. Oh, is it one of those, give us five bucks and in a few weeks you'll have four, our sheet? Four dollars. Wow. I, I, I have such a soft spot for those. As anybody who's listened to me talk about them on Pledge of Indifference knows I don't, I'm not one of those people like Kickstarter is for only a certain kind of thing and it shouldn't be for these kinds of activities and Zach Braff shouldn't be raising money on whatever. Like, no, I'm not like that, but I do have a great deal of appreciation for send us a small amount of money and you'll have print and play files in three weeks. I love that instant gratification. Yeah. It's a neat little, you know, you're sort of picking out all the different things that you'd stick on a snowman, you know, your <laughs> carrot and scarf and boots and looks boots. Great. Yeah. Look, listen, why does snowman have legs? This know. is weird. How would they dance? Um, <laughs> uh, so anyway, wow. this is called Snow That's People. That's almost a Cohen Walker. Like, geez. He can check it out. Um, how how can the snowman dance? <laughs> I could see you publish a collection of essays on the changing of the seasons called The Day the Snowmen Dance. More, li- more likely to be poems, I think. Okay. Free verse or? Uh... Jazzy, I think. A little. Okay. Yeah. Freeform jazz be- poem. Beat poetry. Exactly. Beat poetry. Walker. <laughs> Playing. Walker playing. The games. The the snowflakes drop. (laughs) The snowman winks. His feet shuffle along. Flash! (laughs) All right. (laughs) Silliness has to stop. All right, yeah, so snow people. Oh, damn, we're in trouble. Cool little uh, roll and write game. If you're into that type of thing, it caught my eye. Just a note about PAX Unplugged. I've been seeing a lot of people talk about their experiences there, and it seems to have been a uh, uh, a great time for a lot of individuals. Saw people masked, which was great. I'm glad that, that cons are still insisting on, on mask policies. But the words of a fellow pod boy were ringing in my head. I remember we did a, a joint show with Board Game Barrage at Shut Up and Sit Down Expo at Shucks, and a certain Kellen warned us about the nefarious influence of marketing in all areas of life. And generally speaking, I'm more pro-market than he is. But one thing he pointed out, which had never occurred to me, was he pointed out that all those hall pictures at the end of conventions, you should always ask people, he said, which of those they actually bought and which of those they were given. Because the hall picture, the H-H-A-U-L, is a way of demonstrating enthusiasm perhaps when there isn't any, or a way of generating buzz when none is warranted, or giving the impression that there's a desire when one might not exist. And sure enough, I've been seeing lots of people on social media post pictures of these are the 20 games I came back from the con with. And I've been seeing some people on the reply saying, which of these did you buy? And I, for one, am very grateful for these people asking that question, because often the answer is, well, only about half of them. Or only the ones that are old. <laughs> the rest were given as review copies. Because, as you know, we value transparency here on So Very Wrong About Games. And I didn't know, it had never occurred to me until Kellum brought it up, that this is the kind of thing that happens. And so, just a little bit of listener education, a little bit of commercial know-how. 
the next time you see a hall picture, just keep in mind, maybe those aren't things that people bought. Agreed. So I saw a dexterity game, Mark. We liked Crazy Tower. It's sort of Tetromino, uh big block. I really want to play that again. Yeah. Pro- possibly by the correct rules this time. Could. We might do that. That would require reading them, and we just. I'm willing to do that. All, all of the all of the two sheets. Yeah, I can think. I, I think I can manage that. So there's another one called Teeter Tower. So instead of uh, domino or tetromino pieces, these are dice, and same so same sort of thing. There's like uh, outline print on the dice, and I think there's some sort of little mini game there that will tell you how to place those dice, and you stack it up. It's definitely, I think, right in our wheelhouse. I'm sold. Teeter Tower. Check it out. That is the news and why it doesn't matter. On to our feature game, which is Planet Unknown. Planet Unknown was designed by Ryan Lambert and Adam Rayberg of Adam's Apple Games, published this year pursuant to successful crowdfunding. This design team has published a number of games in the past, such as Truck Off and Sword Crafters, the latter of which I've tried, and it was, you know, arguably a game. Walker, why don't you give us an unhelpful summary about what one does in Planet Unknown? Well... Planet Unknown, I think, is my favorite roll and write. Or is it a place and roll or a spin and turn? Spin and turn. <laughs> spin and turn. Sit and spin, I think, so, actually. Yes. Yeah. So you, you you spin the Lazy Susan as the the leader. Sorry, the leader spins the Lazy Susan. And or turns the Lazy Susan. Turns the they don't lazy have turn. to do it randomly. They don't. Although we did see Chip the Third take, take the spin direction to New Heights and did indeed spin it randomly. This is not advised. Yeah, so they get to place, they get to choose where this lines up. And then everyone will have a choice of two tiles. You place this on either your generic planet or your specialized planet. And then, like any other roll and write, it's going to create these combos because you're going to go up these tracks that are going to like combo another track, which will allow you to move more on the map or let you place another tile, which will set off other combos. So it's a very interesting sort of. Choose how you're going to go up these tracks and get the best out of your boards. I think calling it a roll and write is illustrative in terms of how the combos feel and illustrative in terms of how it feels when selecting a piece. But I think it undersells the spatial aspect of both placing your tiles and moving your rovers around. Well, what I'm thinking of is it's much like, I think, why I don't do well in roll and rights, because you have to be very selective about which things you cross off mm-hmm. instead of just doing it, you know, higgledy-piggledy, and I just feel like doing it, you know, this working H- on this. Higgledy-piggledy. Higgledy-piggledy, yes. Pickledy? Pickledy. Is it higgledy-piggledy? I don't or is know. it higgledy-pickle? I thought it was higgledy-piggledy. I, I don't think it matters. Okay. You're probably right. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. Moving on. But- so this even comes up in this in like two layers in this game where it because like you said where you're doing a tetromino tetris thing you're trying to get all these tiles to fit and then there is a another mechanic that we'll talk about later later is where you need to keep certain terrain types on the outside because you want them to be able to trigger again because there's like this terrain type that is energy that will trigger off of uh, whatever it's touching. So if you need particular things to trigger again, you have to make sure that you leave those sides open. So that is what I was thinking of. Yeah, I, I think just dismissing the entire tiling element, I think, does Planet Unknown a disservice. Because the first time I, I played Planet Unknown, I definitely felt that sense 
that you talked about it being pulled in lots of different directions because there's a host of priorities you can devote yourself to. That is a common feature of Roller Knights, but it's also a common feature of many different kinds of games. For example, it's one of the defining elements of, say, Through the Desert, which is very much not a, a, a Roll and Write in any way and is much, much simpler than actually most Roll and Writes and certainly simpler than Planet Unknown. And on my first play, I kind of got lost in terms of exploiting all the weird toyetic elements of the, well, actually not actually toyetic, the toy-like elements of the techs and the sieves and all the other things you can do. And I neglected the very simple aspect of fill your board. Because filling your board can be worth a large quantity of points near the end of the game, or if you neglect it, it will be worth a small number of points. And so it can very easily make the, the, the difference. So if you play it like a roll and write, just focusing on the tracks and, and ignoring the spatial aspect, you're probably not going to do very well, which is fine. It's just I think it demonstrates the extent to which, despite its similarities, it is dissimilar to roll and writes. Well, the other way that makes it similar is the fact that in a lot of roll and writes, there's the one leader, and they get to roll the dice, they get to pick the best dice that and is true. everyone else just gets the the leftovers i guess you could say and that's the same way it works here yes the leader gets to choose between 12 possible tiles whereas everyone else will then as a consequence of what the leader chooses be able to choose between two possible tiles and then on those tiles will be two types of terrain of which there are six yes and uh then you're going to place that tile on your board and you're going to move up those two tracks with uh, other rules exceptions you're going to move up those tracks on your tracks <laughs> yes that are tracky that are well, okay the tracks. they're absolutely tracks but they're not especially tracky because they don't have the, the the tracky characteristics that i even alluded to even just in this episode the trackiest of tracks have weird and arbitrary costs associated uh, them are seem peripheral and yet are very very central to the game in planet unknown they're very upfront and straightforward about how to advance the tracks there's in fact no costs involved at all it's just well did you place a red piece while well, you go up the red track that's pretty bone simple, and it constitutes half of your playing area in front of you. So it's not as if someone's going, oh, I forgot that the tracks were important. <laughs> when when the entire game is straightforward tracks, I don't really mind tracks all that much, suffice to say. And placing the tiles is relatively easy. You have to start on the outside. The next ones have to be adjacent. And then there's just a couple interesting rules with what I've already covered with the energy tiles. They key off of what you place them next to. And then the water tiles, which will only give you let you go up the water track as long as you cover the ice that is on your planet. It has an appropriate arc. I mean, Planet Unknown is a relatively quick game, somewhere between 60 to 90 minutes, probably, depending on player count and how fast people play. And yet it, it progresses along the arc that you want. At the start of the game, your entire planet is open. You've got tons of room. Every shape is just an opportunity. There's practically no downside. There's no difficulty in avoiding crushing the things you want to crush because there are these life pods on the planet. You want to collect them rather than crush them. You can easily place meteorites, which prevent you from scoring. You'll have time to get rid of them later. Ain't no problem. But as the game goes on, suddenly it's like, okay, the mid-game arises, and you start looking at your tracks and realizing, okay, I really want to hit these in a certain order. And then the late game shows up far sooner than you might think, and suddenly you don't have room for things anymore. <laughs> and and suddenly correct placement becomes very, very challenging. So I do appreciate it when games, especially quick games, develop in an interesting arc. Yeah, because you want water early because you want to get because the water track's usually good and you need to cover up that ice. And then you hate water tiles later <laughs> because you've either A, covered up all your water or the tile that you have to pick 
won't fit where the water is, and therefore you're only going up one track, so it's very suboptimal. Well, you always hate whatever track you did well on in the beginning, because you can probably get either to the maximum or near the maximum, certainly where you want to go, and eventually you start looking at the offerings and being like, well, I don't want any red. I'm, I'm done with red. I've done what I needed to do, or I don't have any anybody to pick up anymore. So yes, as the game goes on, your choice is narrow, but not in the sense of options, in the sense of it's more challenging to get where you want to go, which again is the way you want these kinds of games to proceed as far as I think. All right, let's go all the way back to the setup because you can pick generic or you can pick fancy and that goes for both <laughs> for your player board and your planet. So there's Walker's so fancy. He doesn't even know. He's so fancy. Is this like our our singing episode? It wasn't until you made it that way. All right then. All right, so you have your special corporation which they all have different unique abilities, you know, going up the tracks in a different way, utilizing the rovers in a way, all sorts of different things. That's I I think they're all very interesting. I I can't think of one that is particularly boring. Yeah, they're all pretty cool, I think. And then we have the special planets, which are very bizarre. <laughs> they remind me a little bit of the Galaxy Trucker special ships. Although not as interesting in the sense of introducing these very, very weird restrictions where you look at it and say, I don't know how I'm going to be able to make this work. And then you struggle along. But there are some that give you benefits and some that give you massive yeah. penalties. This is where the cracks in the system start to arise. Because just to be clear, every time I play Planet Unknown, pretty much every one of the tables is like, this is really fun. And it is. The fun factor, that in, indelible sort of enjoyment of just being able to place out cool things and acquire fun toys and be able to exploit neat things and be able to pull off the th having something fit just right or getting that little biomass tile that you can put wherever you want to plug that hole that you never thought you were going to solve. Very, very satisfying. And I've always had a good time playing Planet Unknown. If you take a step back, though, and you start putting your game designer or game analyst hat on and you start asking questions... Very frequently, Planet Unknown starts shrugging. Like, for example, hey, Planet Unknown, what happens if I pull that unique planet board in conjunction with that corporation who has a special power that makes that hindrance almost irrelevant? I don't know, says Planet Unknown. Hey, Planet Unknown, how come that special planet is, seems strictly better than this other special planet because it just hands you options rather than handcuffing you? I don't know, says Planet Unknown. Stop asking questions. Hey, 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 Planet Unknown. Ha, pl pl planet Unknown. How come I, on my right-hand side, have an objective that tells me to maximize a certain kind of tile, and on my left-hand side tells me to minimize a certain kind of tile, and my opponents don't have the same kind of... Shut up. Oh. Play the game. Oh. Okay, Planet Unknown. I guess I will. And then when you shut up and play the game, you're still having fun. Like, <laughs> just to be clear, this is like, I'm going to, uh, this is so frustrating because Walker doesn't have to deal with this. You're having fun on your planet board. It's okay. It's just, it's one of those things that separates an enjoyable, solid game that you never mind pulling out to this is exquisitely well-designed and I'm going to be playing this for years. That's the kind of distinction that I'm talking about. Yeah, because not only can you have a corporation that works perfectly with the planet that you chose, the two objectives on either side could like feed right into both of those abilities, and then you're away to the races, or it could be the exact opposite, where yeah. you're just 
I'll, I'll just have fun playing my own area and not listen to the scores at the end of the game. <laughs> yeah, which again is fine, which also leads to one of the other problematic aspects of Planet Unknown, which is there's no player interaction. I guess in that sense, it is very similar to that of Roland Rights. Now, near the end of the game, you can be in positions where you're like, okay, I want the game to go longer, and I know that if I stick the large tiles in front of Walker, he's not going to be able to place them, and that will cause the game to end. Eh, but we're talking about a couple of rounds in a 20-ish round game max, which also reminds me of another way the game can end, which is the events module, which is another example of kind of sort of half-baked nonsense thrown at the wall and, and, and yeah, single but stick. not only is it half-baked, it's just so generic. It's like, oh yeah, go up this track by two, go down this track by two. Yes, and it also leans into some of those other problems we were talking about, because going down a track is sometimes hugely advantageous if that lets you then advance up a space again and get an awesome thing once more. On the other hand, it could mean that you've just wasted a track advancement. So it can range all the way from advantageous to seriously detrimental based on completely arbitrary timing issues and where you are. And so there's a lot in the box of Planet Unknown, both in terms of components and in terms of play modes. There's the solo mode. There's a number of different ways to do objectives. You can play with uh, with the asymmetric or symmetric boards for both the corporation and the planet, blah, 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 blah. The more you start looking at them critically, though, the less well done any one of those particular elements seems to be in the context of the entire package. And then while you're doing all this, you also get to drive around on your little planet. You have this cute little rover, and he bops around your planet. And he destroys meteors. He, your your robots he, a bo- your he, your rover's a boy rover. Yeah. Okay. They it, pick up life. It's a rover, Walker. It you don't have up, to gender the rover. I'm sorry. It <laughs> picks up life pods, much like uh, cryo. You have life pods out on on the table. They're full of <laughs> civilians, and you can either just slam the train down on them and not worry about it. You didn't want Jimmy or Sarah on your planet anyway. No Whoa. one likes those guys. Rough. So, but, I thought, but I thought fair was, though, they don't tip. They don't tip. Yeah, that's what happens when you don't tip. Um, yeah, so I thought that was interesting. And each corporation deals with those rovers in a different way. Kind of neat. It is, and it's one of the f- it's one of the fun things you get to do. You get to take this lovely plastic rover and drive around on your little planet, and it interacts in interesting ways with your tile placement because you can also crush your rover, which is not recommended. <laughs> and it just adds that tension, right? Because you just don't want to crush your life pod for no reason, right? Right. So, you, so you're you're twisting the tiles to move <laughs> around, and you say, "Oh, I'll save them. Don't worry." So you're you're like penalizing yourself when you know there's no way you're going to get all of them anyway. <laughs> yeah. Just just call it and start crushing them right from the beginning. Yeah, it, it, it's one of those, a lot of very satisfying trade-offs in a very, very simple and straightforward package. Now, allow me to further contextualize a lot of my sort of backhanded praise of Planet Unknown. Because again, every time I play Planet Unknown, I have a very good time and everyone else at the table also really enjoys it. It's visually appealing and lots of cool stuff happens. And I'm able very easily to for, to forget my misgivings about how well-balanced it might be or how well any of the given things fit together. I don't know, despite the fact that I'm a rapacious game collector, how many Tetromino laying games I need in a collection. I suspect the answer might be, at most, 1.5. And it so happens that Planet Unknown is my one. But... When I think back on a lot of the other Tetromino playing laying games that I've thoroughly enjoyed, one in particular that comes to mind, which is one I've never owned, namely Baron Park, 
much smaller, much more economical, much more satisfying in terms of overall end product. I'll get to that in a minute. And much cheaper. And there's uh, uh, and there's more player interaction. If I already had Baron Park, would I feel any need to have Planet Unknown? And I think personally the answer is no. Oh, I don't know. I think the playing time for Planet Unknown is much shorter than Baron Park. What? Definitely the setup time. I disagree. You complain all the time about the setup time about Baron Park, and it's it's there, sure, but in order to uh, properly set up a game of Planet Unknown, you need to shuffle all 12 piles of tiles. I don't think so. I think it, when it gets put away, they get t- they get shuffled well enough. Yeah, but many of the piles, they never get down to the bottom half. And so I don't I don't share your, your nobody wants op- those tiles anyway. Okay, fine. <laughs> so we can call that a wash. But what what I wanted to get at in terms of uh, satisfying in terms of the end product is I really value tile laying games when at the end of the game I get to look at it and feel like something interesting has been built. I don't get that sense when playing Planet Unknown, which is not a serious problem. But when you compare it to the the true genius tile laying games, like when I look at a game of Stevenson's Rocket. I really appreciate the network that was made because it's different from every game. When I look at the game of Tigers and Euphrates, I see the kingdoms that survived the rise and fall of various things. When I play a game of Baron Park, I've got a park full of bears. And that's something. When I play a game of Planet Unknown, the themelessness of the game really comes home. The, the, the picture on the front of the box shows ships dropping forests on the face of a barren planet. And that really gives you a sense about which they don't really know what's going on here. And I, I, every planet looks more or less the same after you've covered it with a whole bunch of stuff. Just a random hodgepodge yeah, of colors here well, and there. Once you've played the tile, it really doesn't matter anymore. There might yeah. be some objectives that, that you know, you need the biggest sure. forest area or whatever. But largely, it doesn't matter. So, it, you know, you don't care yeah. after it's on which, which, again, is fine. This is a minor criticism. It's just there are other very similar games that give me a slightly greater appreciation of what happened. Like, I like at, at the end of a game of Baron Park looking down and seeing my koalas. That's Koalas are great. And I'm just saying, hey, Planet Unknown, where are my koalas? Just so. So my last my last point will be, I enjoy the uh, the Lazy Susan. Very cool. Real Lazy we, Susan that yeah. spins. Um, and the, the components are... Components all, are great. Top notch. All oh. of them. And uh, the different, they're sort of different endgame conditions, which is interesting sometimes. Yes. And the one thing I want to emphasize, because a number of listeners find this comparison valuable, I have played both the Kickstarter exclusive version and the retail version. Both of them are relatively expensive. The retail version, I believe, MSRP is at 80 American dollars. Now, there's a lot of high-quality stuff in there, and you lose precious little going from the, the retail version from the Kickstarter version. The life pods become wooden tokens instead of plastic. Same thing with the meteorites. You lose a small number of asymmetric corporations and a small number of asymmetric planets. But honestly, despite the fact that I have deep completionist urges that I often must fight, I do not find the downgrade to be unfortunate. And now, being in a position where I used to have the Kickstarter version and I only have the retail version, I'm fine with that. So, I'm glad you reacquired a copy of Planet Unknown. Uh, like lots of things about it. There's different ways you can focus in every game. I doubt sometimes you'll get to the end of every track. Not always. Very seldom will you fill your whole planet because I don't think we ever did in any of our games, but I'm no. sure came very close. I'm sure in a future game, someone will. And uh, I'm glad we have it. I'm glad we have it too. 
And I enjoy all of my playings, and I'm looking forward to my future playing. But the same is true of a lot of different polyomino games. And the issue is, in a universe with tons of high-quality polyomino-focused games, like Baron Park, like Indian Summer, like Patchwork, in a universe where lots of other Euro games are leveraging polyominoes in interesting ways like Feast for Odin, like a number of other quality or games. How many pure-ish polyomino tiling games do you need? And again, for me, I'm happy with my one, which is probably going to be Planet Unknown. But if I had had one of the others in my collection that, that I found personally very satisfying, like, for example, Baron Park, I might not have felt the need to track down uh, a copy. So that's going to do it for this week. Thank you very, very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find all our contact information at sowronggames.com slash contact. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thank you very much for spending some time with us. We appreciate it a great deal. Thank you for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.